Perfect. I'm going to try it again. So maybe you guys, I just want to let you guys know I'm really excited that my book has made it to the New York Times bestsellers list. So it's really just kind of popping. Um, that's how we were afford, be able to afford that new trailer that we have sitting in our driveway. Yeah, I, you know, like I said, just the, the, uh, the publisher thought that would be a good idea for me to, you know, really just kind of, it makes me look younger. Yes, the triple chin in with the, and that suit too, that's a really nice suit too. I paid top dollar for that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So anyway, we talked about your worst life now, and we were looking at the life of Haman. Um, Haman's life just deteriorates really quickly. And we said, well, how do you, how do you destroy your life? And actually, we kind of used the opposite, the opposite made the opposite points of destroying your life. But we talked about last week, we talked about just the worship of Jesus. Haman, Haman just worshipped um, his status, his career, his money, his wealth, all the possessions, his sons. We use that quote from David Foster Wallace, who says that, you know, if you worship pretty much anything else, um, it will eat you alive. And we just talked about how our call as Christians, and we keep coming back to this, is to worship Jesus. You will become like that which you worship, right? You will become like that which you worship. We embrace contentment. Um, there's that verse in there where, again, Haman has everything. He has the status in the government. He has the money. He has the sons. He has the wife. He has, he has everybody bowing down to him. And it says, but he couldn't be happy because that Jew wouldn't bow down to him. He couldn't enjoy it because that Jew. And we just talked about the importance of embracing contentment. That little prayer that's, that's I hope, has been with you this week. It's been with me. Uh, Jesus, empower me to be content with all you have given me. Uh, and then lastly, we, we looked at Proverbs 6, the things that God hates. And Proverbs 6 is these things that God hates. Tongue, a tongue that's, that lies, eyes that are haughty um, or, or prideful, um, a mouth that kind of uh, does wickedness, the, the evil deceit, all these sorts of things. And Haman just kind of embodies it. It's, it's his entire position, his disposition is against God. And we said there's another list in the New Testament, the fruit of the Spirit that we, that we embrace and that we kind of move into. Joy that overflows, peace that subdues, patience that endures, kindness in action, a life full of virtue, faith that prevails, gentleness of heart, and strength of spirit. And again, these are, these are the things that, you know, again, if you want to ruin your life, again, in my book that I've, I've written, again, you could worship anything else. Just go worship money, status, career. It'll eat you alive. Never be content, right? Keep searching for more. You have everything and you just want more. And then think about all the things that God hates, deceitfulness, lying, wickedness, um, pride, arrogance, those sorts of things. So that's where we were last week, Haman. <clears throat> we got this teaching this week, and then next week I'm going to talk about the Feast of Purim, which is what this whole book is kind of about, and then we actually are going to feast together. So I was like, hey, we're going to end this a teaching on feasting, and then we're going to go out and feast in, in, in our park. So we're going to do that. Um, we ended last week that Haman, Haman is killed, right? Haman had built these gallows for Mordecai to be killed on, and then he ends up as the one who's killed. But there's still a problem that's happening in the book of Esther. And the problem is, is that the king has made the edict for the Jews to be killed, right? And you can't just retract that edict, right? So if you got a Bible, let's go read about this in Esther chapter 8, 
verses 3 through 11. Again, Haman has been killed. The edict to annihilate the Jews is still in effect. Verse 3, everybody there? Everybody there? Starting in verse 3, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agite, which he had devised against the Jews. Verse 4, Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if, it regard, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamathida, the Agite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled um, him on the pole he has set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in in behalf uh, of the Jews as it seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Again, that's the problem that's happening here. They had made this decree, and you can't just revoke a decree. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of uh, Sivan, they wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, the governors, and the nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and in the language of, of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. Then the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and to protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them, and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. Okay, The day that appointed for the Jews to do this um, in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. Um, so we get to this piece here. And again, the king's edicts, here's, here's how I would say it works. The king's edicts were law, right? Once they said this was law, they wouldn't go back on that. Right? If they were to go back on that, maybe this will be helpful. I made this little, whoops. If they were to go back on that, right? Oh, that was a good one. I didn't think that was going to work that well. <laughs> if they were to go back on it, they'd, they'd kind of become like this wishy-washy, weak king. So the plan that they say is to create a counter edict, right? A mirror law to balance the law. But this law is a law of what? Is it a law of offense or defense? Defense right? So the law is that, listen, if if they come after you, if they are coming to kill you, you have the right to assemble and defend yourself, right? Now, I want to circle back to this law towards the end because something happens interesting with this law. But what I want to do here in this moment is I want to switch to some calendaring. Um, 
And so here's a calendar of 474 BCE. And I actually have no idea if this is 474 BCE. That's 2019. Um, but I switched it. <clears throat> if you were to take, because in the book of Esther, you have all these dates. And we don't really recognize the dates because they use different month names or using the Jewish calendar rather than our Western calendar. But here's, here's how it kind of translates into what we would say is our calendar. Okay? The original edict that Haman does happens on April 17th. Right? That's when Haman, again, kind of back, I think it's in chapter 3, when he gets together and he says, hey, we're going um, to gather together and, and here's the edict to annihilate all the Jews. Happens on April 17th. Now Esther, remember, um, Mordecai finds out about it. There's those three days of fasting. She, has a, um, she goes before the king and she says, hey, come to my uh, banquet that I've thrown for you. And then she throws a banquet. She says, hey, if you really like what I've done, come to my banquet tomorrow and I'll tell you what my request is. So say Esther, hold on, I'm getting ahead of myself. The, the original edict is on the 17th. The day, like the, the, the day of killing is supposed to happen on March 7th, right? So it's almost a year that's going to circle before the actual day of killing. Now, going back to what I was just talking about, she has the three days of fasting, uh, throws a banquet, come to my banquet tomorrow, right? And this is the day that she pleads before the king and the king says, okay, um, I'll, I'll, um, your people are saved. But we get to this in chapter eight. What's fascinating about this in chapter eight is that between this original time at her banquet, right? That banquet that she, um, that she does for the king and then by the time she's doing this again, when she's falling on her knees, pleading before the king, it's 70 days, right? Now, we read this book, and we read it fast, and we read it kind of in our microwave, uh, you know, in our microwave mindset, but this is all a little over two months be between the first time she goes before the king, right? And again here in chapter 8, where she goes before the king again, Right? 70 days. Now, you, again, you got to imagine those 70 days that, you know, imagine the stress of knowing that you're, this is coming for your people, all those sorts of things. And she, again, she goes and she goes to the king again on the 25th of June is, is what they say. She goes to the king and she says, please, king, right? And that's actually on this day is when that counter edict is written. Original edict Esther's original approach to the king, Esther's second approach to the king, and the counter edict written. 70 days, right? Now, if we were to take this calendar, and this actually is 2019, if we were to take this calendar, and here's what I want us to think about. Because this was so striking to me, the 70 days, I don't know why it was so striking to me. Here's what I want us to think about. Here's 2019. Here we are on September 15th, right? 70 days takes us to November 23rd, right? And I, I know the metaphor is a little bit rough. She makes her original plea to the king here on the 15th, right? Now, I know you're probably thinking like, wait, are you comparing God to King Xerxes? Not quite, but again, the metaphor is a little rough. But Esther goes before the king and pleads for something, right? And then she goes again before the king and pleads for something here on the 23rd. What I'm asking us to do and what I'm thinking about doing, or what we're going to do is we are going to go before our king and, and we're going to do what I'm going to call 70 days and this, we're going to pray for our church. All right? And here's how we're going to do this. Um, 
I was thinking about this again, because you see this in Esther. She's, again, she's going before the king, asking, pleading, help me, right? She's going before the king, asking, pleading, helping. And there's this kind of, this period in between, where I'm assuming that she's not just kind of cruising, thinking like, oh, everything's cool, you know. She's still distraught about this. She's still taken aback by this. She's still hurting by this. And she's probably still um, asking and trying to figure this, this situation out. And so what I want to do is this. And I was like, man, I, we've never done this before. I want to call and ask our church to pray for our church, right? To come before our king and pray for, kind of, for the people, right? For the people sitting in this room that we would gather together and that we would pray for one another. What I'll do is this, and what we're going to do is this together. Each morning over the next 70 days, and if you want to opt out of this, just let me know. It's okay. I'm going to send you a little text message. And it's going to be something specific to pray for in the church. Okay? One of the things I'm going to do is we're going to, I'm just going to go down the list, and, and, and we're going to pray for all the individuals of the church. So one day you're going to get a text message, and it's going to say, you know, good morning, everyone. This morning we're going to gather around, and we're going to pray for Tony Nguyen, right? And we're all as a church, we're going to pray for Tony. And we're going to get another text message another day. And we're going to say, good morning church, we're all going to gather around and we're going to pray for her, even though he slipped out. We're going to pray for Brody Trevilia, right? Then we're all going to pray for Brody. And we're going to say, good morning church, we're going to get, pray for Ronnie. And we're going to pray for little Reagan. And we're just going to pray for 70 days. Every day we're going to pray for a different person, an individual. We're going to pray for unity for the church. We're going to pray for a deeper hunger in this church for Christ, for wisdom, for love, for knowledge, for our church finances, for influence in this community, for people to know Jesus, for growth, for people who have addictions to be healed, for people who have sickness to be healed. We're going to pray for our serve days. We're going to pray for our events. We're going to pray for our gatherings. Every day, I'll send you a text message. This will be large group text message kind of stuff. I'm not going to be sending 45 text messages. Every. I'm going to send a text message to our church and say, here and what, here's who we're going to pray for today. And I would say this, there's a little bit of me that was embarrassed in the eight years or so as a pastor that I've been doing this. We've never really done this, but I just felt the Lord really put it on my heart. Again, as I thought about those 70 days, Esther approaches the king. King, my people, they're in trouble. They're in difficulty. They're struggling. Will you save my people? She comes again 70 days later. King, and again, the metaphor, the metaphor here is, is, you know, it's, it's a little bit loose, but we're, we're coming before our king, king our people. We're asking for you to do something here in this church, right? We're asking for you to do something in this church, these people, our lives, individuals, our neighborhood. We're going to spend the next 70 days of prayer for our church. Uh, you'll get a text message tomorrow morning. I'll send one to you. <clears throat> um, and one of the things I want to do is, and I've been doing this even kind of leading up to this, I'm praying for our prayer, right? I'm praying that this time of prayer, these 70 days of prayer, would be transformative for the individual sitting for this church, for this church in general, for our neighborhood for those around us, for the serve days that we do. So I want to pause just here in the middle of this sermon 
And I think that it's appropriate, if we're going to spend the next 70 days of prayer, I just want to spend a little bit of time for us as a church to pray. So let's just pause here. And if you, if, if you bow, your, uh, bow your heads, close your eyes, if, if, uh, fold your hands, whatever you want to do. But we're just going to spend a little bit of time in prayer. And I'm going to ask a few people to lead out in prayer, if you feel comfortable leading out in prayer. Um, and then if not, and then if you don't, you don't have to, this isn't like, hey, everybody's got to pray out loud. And then I'll close in a few minutes. And we're just going to pray again. We're kind of almost praying for prayer. We're praying for this church. So if you feel comfortable leading out in prayer, we'll pray. And then um, I'll close it up in a few minutes. So... <clears throat> individual here for the next 70 days, Lord, we each person commit to praying for individuals, praying for a community, praying for the church, and uh, Lord, may this be a time of growth, may people see you, um, may people understand what this time is going to mean to them, and even to this community as a whole. Um, Lord, I pray for ears to listen, Lord. Hearts to just move into action when when something happens during this time. Um, Lord, we're grateful and we just ask that you lead us between now and November. Thank you, Lord. Father, Lord, I just want to thank you for this church, Lord, how special it is, Lord. Lord, I just lift it up to you, Lord, for growth, for the finances, Lord, and for the health of the church. And just so thankful for this family that is here. I pray for all the individual families, all their individual children, and I just pray just be with us, Lord, and, and 
God, in the book of Esther, we see, we just see, you know, what, what happens. Just see what happens when somebody is bold enough. They have the courage, the strength, the fierceness in their soul to approach the king. And again, I know the metaphor is a little loose, God, but we as a church are approaching you, our king. God, so many people in this world, in this neighborhood, they need you. They need the salvation power of Jesus Christ in their life. So many people in our families, so many of our friends, so many people that we're close to, they need you, King, King Jesus, to take control of their lives, that they would submit to you and surrender to you. And so, Lord, we're bold in coming before you as a church in prayer. God, we understand that prayer is really what moves this church. And even though maybe over the years we haven't engaged as deeply as we should, God, we give you and we dedicate these next days, these next weeks, these next months to you in prayer. God, may we be faithful. May we be passionate. May we be zealous. May we be courageous in our prayer to you for this church, for your people. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the last things about this 70 days, the original from here when she approaches the king the second time and the second edict is written, from here to here is about nine months. It's pretty much nine months. So what's interesting from this original edict to when the Jews actually do battle and they defend themselves and they end up victorious is nine months. Again, if we're over to lay, if we were to overlay that on our calendar, we go from November 23rd to August 23rd, in which I will turn 40 years old. The battle will be on on the 23rd. I just put that together and I was like, okay, so if, I mean, every day just throwing some prayers for me as I move into the big 4-0. There you go. I just thought that was kind of funny. One of the big themes of Esther, and we learned this with the Bible Project, is the symmetry of the book. Right? And um, they, the, those guys talked about how you start with the king of Persia's greatness, and you end with Mordecai's greatness. Haman is elevated. Mordecai is elevated. Haman's decree to kill the Jews. Mordecai's decree to save the Jews. Um, Esther and Mordecai plan to uh, reverse the decree. Esther and Mordecai plan to reverse the decree again just kind of all and the story here pivots in the middle in the middle where Haman is or Mordecai is honored by Haman um, so again this book and think, again think about it as as a mnemonic device as a memory device imagine you lived right imagine you were living in exile and you for, I mean what's the illiteracy rate in in the 400s BC 90 percent 95 percent One of the beautiful things about the book is they create this structure so that people can memorize and know this story. So you would begin like, oh yeah, the king was was honored, or the king talks about how great he is. Oh, but who's really great, right? Mordecai's greatness. And there's all this, 
this symmetry. So in the book, you have this brilliant symmetry. And even in the laws, even in the edicts, there's this symmetry. So here's the two decrees. In Haman's original edict, Haman's original law, you have a specific date, that it's for one day, the secretaries are summoned, there's this written text, it's sent to every province and in every language, it's sealed with a king's ring, it's to destroy and kill Jews, it involves women and children, and you can plunder the goods. On Mordecai's edict, again, it's just, it's just the same. Specific date, uh, one day, secretaries are summoned. There's a written text, a province in the language. There's a king's ring. Destroy and kill the armed men. Again, this is in, in, in a mode of defense. There's the women and children who are mentioned here. Um, and then there's the plundering of goods. Sometimes people think about this as, um, you know, again, why would they say this? The, the, the main point behind the edict, behind Mordecai's edict, was just to mirror this edict, right? Again, it wasn't an offensive, it wasn't an offensive move. There is this, again, this beautiful symmetry. I found this photo. I thought this was a really cool photo. Um, this is actually in Japan. This, this Japanese photographer found all these different symmetrical pieces and, and, and made these symmetry photographs. There's this beautiful symmetry that's happening in the book of Esther. Now, one more text. <clears throat> Esther chapter 9, 5 through 15. Because something kind of funky happens here at the end of Esther chapter 9. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed, I'm, I'm just going to skip all 10. I'm just going to say, I'm going to skip the names, the 10 sons of Haman of Hamathada, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on, their plunder, on the plunder. Notice how many times this, they did not lay their hands on the plunder comes up. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will also be granted. Verse 13, If it pleases the king, Esther answered, Give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also. And let Haman's ten sons be impaled on the poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to to death in Susa three hundred men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now, one of the things that's really fascinating, again, because this book is so perfectly symmetrical, one of the things that all the commentators note is, I'm just going to put this, this plus one of Esther. Esther goes to the king and says, let us kill for another day, right? Now, what's going on here? Why would she do this? Why would she ask for another day of killing? Well, first off, one of the things that we would just say is that she ruins the, the symmetry of the book, Sorry, that was just kind of a, for you OCD people, she just kind of goes, right? Again, the book of Esther is so beautiful in its symmetry. It's so poetic. It's so artistic. And she kind of comes in here and she like, 
She's like, well, let's, let's go for one more day. Now, the commentators note this, and I'm going to quote just a few of them right here because I thought that their insight was, was really brilliant. This is from, from Karen Jobes, and, and Karen wrote, I think, probably one of the best commentaries that I've, I've read. She says, the biblical Esther is evaluated almost universally in negative terms for requesting a second day of killing. The author makes no attempt to exonerate the queen or justify her request. Here's another one from David Strain. David Strain says it like this. What Esther says next is her darkest hour. She asks that the bloodshed in Susa be extended for another day so that it might be taken out of the citadel, down into the outer city, and so that the bodies of the ten sons of Haman might be publicly exposed to humiliation by being hung on their own gallows alongside their father. And we're left to think, she wants more blood? Michael Fox, another commentator, says it like this. The Jews' enemies could not have lawfully attacked them on a second day. Therefore, the Jews were safe, and Esther's request was literally overkill. At this point, Esther seems to turn vindictive. She no longer even attempts to justify ethically her request to the king and does not mention the uh, welfare of her people. Again, what's happening here with Esther? Two things to think about this. Number one is some people say that this is an explanation for the two days of Purim. Remember, this is all about a Jewish festival. That we're going to talk about this, this, this festival of Purim next week, right? This is all about one of the Jewish festivals. This is how one of these festivals come about. And the festival is actually celebrated for two days. So maybe the author is trying to say, well, here's why we celebrate it for two days. Although the author doesn't really say, hey, by the way, this is why we celebrate it for two days, right? He just kind of talks about that Esther goes and says, let's kill for another day, right? The second thing that I think is, is more interesting to me and I think is probably more true, and again, Jobs makes this point, is that there is a dark side of leadership. Job says this, she says that the Bible is remarkable in revealing the darker side of God's chosen leaders, often just at their shining moment. And I will do my best to refrain from all Star Wars references in this moment, but there is a dark side of, unless you want me to, we can put up some some pictures of Luke and, and of Darth Vader and all those sorts of things. There is this dark side. And again, if you, think about, if you think about the Bible, right? And you think about the leaders in the Bible. And you can start with, here, here's a short list. Um, wrong way. You can think about King David. At the peak of David's leadership, when he should be sitting on top, what does he do? Commits adultery and murders her husband? When Elijah, after he calls down fire from heaven and the fire burns the altar and burn, you know what I mean? And then he doubts God's protection, right? God, I'm all alone, God, and right? He's, he's depressed. Moses, as he's leading the people in this triumphant moment in the wilderness, he's disobedient to God. You could think of Samson, right? You cannot say Samson without saying hill. Delilah, right? You can think of, again, you can think of all these people in the Bible, and the Bible, one of the things that's really fascinating about the Bible, if you were to write a book, too, about like a, rel- a religion that you wanted to start, would you write about all their weaknesses, or would you just show how great it is, right? The Bible says, look, here's the dark side of leadership. I was thinking, too, 
some really contemporary examples. Here's, here's two men. Um, on the left is a guy named Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels, in some senses, was like the pioneer of the megachurch in, in Chicago, outside of the suburbs of Chicago. He started a church called Willow Creek. And over the last year, it's come out basically that he was, um, he was just abusive to women. Um, he was sexually unfaithful to his wife. Um, he lied about it. He bullied people. And he, he, I mean, it just was, it was, it was really ugly, the whole narrative that came out. And again, I would say as I kind of grew up, especially early on in my pastor, I really looked up to this guy, right? This guy was, was sharp. He was a great leader. He built a great organization. And behind the scenes, and even in his shining moment, there was this dark side. Just this week, this is a pastor out in Riverside. His name is Jared Wilson. I don't know if anybody saw this. Jared Wilson um, struggled with depression, um, struggled with mental health issues, and he, he took his own life, right? And this was a pastor, one of the pastors out at, at Greg Laurie's church in Riverside at Harvest. Um, and again, the Bible and Christianity were not shy about saying that there is this dark side of leadership. One more quote from Job's who says, perhaps the author is suggesting no one, Jew or Gentile, can handle power without yielding to its dark side. Perhaps Esther's request for a second day of killing shows that she herself had begun to feel the heady intoxication of the power she had so remarkably attained. Now, I would close with this. Because if anything, um, it, it makes us look forward to a real leader, right? It makes us look towards Jesus. If you've led anything, and I look around this room and I see people who lead a lot of things, companies, maybe you lead a small group or a division in your company, maybe you lead a classroom, maybe you've led a project with, at your work, maybe, again, just leading your family, um, even just leading yourself is sometimes one of the hardest things to do. I can guarantee that you have kind of felt that dark side of leadership. One of, the, one of the pastors calls it the shadow side of leadership. We felt it. We understand Esther. We understand her leadership. We understand ourselves. And it makes us, again, I think one of the points, one of the deep points about this, as for us as Christians, it makes us hunger. It makes us long for Jesus as our leader, right? Who, when he was tempted, when the devil leads him out into the wilderness and says, hey, you want power? You want status? You want acclaim? You want people to like you? Right? He's led out in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And Jesus responds in victory. Right? Jesus responds and trusts himself to the Father. He doesn't seek vengeance. He loves unconditionally. He dies rather than kills. Right? And as amazing as Esther was, and Esther's narrative, it's a beautiful, beautiful narrative of the way that she, her boldness and her leadership and her love for her people led to the salvation of the Jews in this time. They estimate that there was about 15 million Jews living in Persia at that time. And as amazing as her story was, there is a note, there is a reminder that we hunger and we long for Jesus, the leader in our world. Esther, I would say this, and I think this is the last one. She calls us. She reminds us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the source and the goal 
of our faith. Uh, let me close in a word of prayer, and then we'll do some, a little bit of discussion. I think Jesus, I don't, I don't want to, yeah, I just want to, I want you to lead me and I want to surrender and submit my life to you. That's why it's so important to hear your voice because if we're busy and we're stressed and we're distracted and we're angry, we don't, we miss your voice and how can we be led by you if we're not actively listening for where you're leading us? God, again, my prayer always is and always will be that you would speak to these people, that you would lead them, that you would guide them with your voice, with your words, because that's all that matters in life, that we would follow you, Jesus. That we would be led by you. Speak to my brothers and sisters this week, this morning, this afternoon, tomorrow. Speak to us in prayer as we engage in prayer over this church. As Robin was praying, that we would listen to you. God, prayer wouldn't just be a one-way street where we just tell you all our laundry list and our requests and all those sorts of things. God, we would listen to you. We would listen for you. We would create that space in our life. We need to be led by Jesus. We need to be led by your power by your love, your goodness, your grace, your truth. Lead us, Father. Lead us, Jesus. Lead us, Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, we'll do just a little bit of discussion. <clears throat> Here are some questions. The, the three Ps, the praise, the pushback, the problems. Is there a 70 days you feel like you're experiencing right now? Is there this kind of time of, of request and, and, and struggle and strife that you're experiencing right now? Um, what is a specific area of or for the church you would like to pray for and maybe I'll just scribble some of those down and we'll, we'll toss those in there um, did you resonate with that dark side of leadership where or when have you experienced this to be true how does Jesus encourage and inspire us in our areas of leadership and if you just want to talk about Star Wars for the next 10 minutes too I think that that might be appropriate there if you just want to use some metaphors and references so my wife would jump right in on that too. She loves Star Wars. It's one of her favorite. <laughs> so not one minute. Huh? Oh my gosh. I turn it on and she goes like, oh Lord, just a giant eye roll. Yeah. Okay. So take a few minutes and then we'll have some discussion.